Greetings, travelers. Greetings, travelers, for nocturnal New Year. Yes, we are rolling around uh, in the last throes of January. I wasn't sure where you were going with that, Mark. We've had some cold. We've had some hints of snow up here. I know the rest of the country got plowed with snow, but it just dodged us. So yes, I believe our we had a, a bit of a tickle of snow, but nothing more right now. Yeah. Some of the roads between us were pretty bad. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. There's this one big mountain between Erica and I. We call that Mount Doom. And uh, it's there for proper reasons. Yes, yes. None shall pass. No, just kidding. <laughs> but uh, this is exciting. This is exciting. This is the last episode of January. January. Yeah. And the, the Patreon is live. The Patreon is live. So, gang, get out there at patreon.com, Erie Travels, and you can help us make some new content. We've got some wonderful stuff for y'all. So please get out there and check it. We're not going to make you do that while you're driving or listening to us at the office. But when you get your break, you know, definitely give it a look-see. So. Yeah, please, because there is going to be some kind of super really cool things that are on patreon coming up here shortly and we will be at megacon very shortly yes and we will also be uh, a bunch more places coming right after that so be sure to check out eerietravels.com and follow our appearance list and see where we're all going to be and see our shiny happy faces yes that would be wonderful we have shiny happy faces so well i'm excited what are we talking about today because i feel like i don't know things what are we talking about this is another where i have to take you on a fun journey if you know anything about this and some people already know looking at the title of the episode that we're going to be discussing an event that is having its 65th anniversary and it is one of those things where if you ask somebody what are the top 10 creepiest mysteries or most unsolved cases in history. If this is not in the top five, that person doesn't know their stuff. So really, I, I think this is one of the craziest of all things. And since we are at the 65th anniversary, we are talking and it is chilly out and there's been some snow. So it kind of fits appropriately. And that is the Dyatlov Pass incident as it has become known. Okay, I have literally zero idea of what that is. All right, well, buckle up because this is crazy. So this is going to be kind of like 101. So there are some people out there that have made their lives just studying this incident. And it's going to hit everything we love to talk about right off the bat. And there are 10 basic theories about what happened. Of course, a couple more recent seem to have gotten the most weight. And I, what you're going to laugh at is that it involved, the reason they've been able to come up with this theory is because of a Disney movie. What? what oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah, get ready. Buckle I'm ready. Up. I'm painfully. But going into this, no, you know, we're Eerie Travels. This is Mark and Erica here. And there is going to be some scary stuff we discuss. So just be ready. All right. So okay, all right. So January 1959. Ooh, way back machine. Way yeah, way back, back machine. Okay. 
a 23-year-old hiker. His name is Igor Dyatlov. He leads a journey with a bunch of other hikers to reach the peak of Orton or Oriton, which is a mountain in the northern Urals of Soviet Russia. Okay. And he's got eight experienced hikers. Okay. Most are from the nearby Ural Polytech Institute. And they're going on an adventure. Now, these are a team of expert hikers. Now, we would think this in America, it would be like eight kids going to the woods and maybe climbing a mountain. And some of them have some experience, some don't. But no, these guys have all done things like this before. They're very skilled and they are experts in outdoor survival. And they are very serious about this. The cool thing was, is they were friends. So they stopped and took a lot and I mean a lot of pictures. These would have been the selfies of their day. They they pose for goofy shots and stuff like that. Now they're on their way to the mountain and disaster of some sort strikes. And we're gonna get into that in a little bit. But just know that of the nine hikers that went out, one makes it back because he doesn't get there. What? So. I already don't like this. All right. So they're on this winter adventure. Okay. Which is, they're earned their grade three hiking rating, which is like the kind of like the Boy Scouts thing, but it's for Russia. And it's one of those just, it's the highest level of difficulty that you can get certified in Russia. And he was a radio engineering student, Igor. He had 16 hikes already on his record. And he led eight previous ones. And this was going to take them about 16 days, maybe 18 days. And they routed through a few cities. And then they also stopped at a, a Vizhai camp, which was just a, a nice, safe place right before it gets to the madness of this. Okay. Now, they are going to be in deep wilderness along uh, the Lozva River. And the com city commission approves the plan. Because that's what you have oh. to do there. This is like you know going to the rangers here in the U.S. If you're going to go camping or go take the Appalachian Trail, you're supposed to register. And then every time you get to certain spots, you have to let them know where you've been. Now, they've done all the right things, right? So joining them is uh, Yuri Dushinko. And this is another radio engineer. And he's also part of the sports club. They've got uh, a lady named... Zina, uh, Z-I-N-A. Her real name is Zinadaya, but I like Zina. As and in the Warrior name. Princess? As in the Warrior Princess, but spelled with a Z. Okay. Uh, Kola Magrova was her last name, and she was a very popular student. And then there was another student named Alexander Koletkov. I'm sorry, I'm going down the list here, gang, doing my best. My Romanian in Russia is not the same thing, just so many people think they are, but they are not. Uh, but he is a physics and technology student, and he was a bit more serious than the others, according to all their journals and everything. Okay. But in the pictures, he's still just as goofy as everybody. The civil engineering student, Ludmilla, or Ludya Dabina, and she also seemed to be a bit more tough. And just to show how badass these people were, once in 1957, a hunter accidentally shot Lydia in the leg. But she still kept going on on her current hike at that time. And wow. So, so that, these are not 
you know, your typical college kids. This is not Cabin in the Woods kids here, right? So yeah. then Yuri Yudin, who is an economics and geology student, and he pretty much rounded out the students. There were also some recent graduates. So there was uh, Nikolai Thibodeau Brignole, and he was pretty much the fun guy. He was the outdoorsman. And now the thing is with him, his father had served time in a gulag during the Stalin regime. Oh. Was, yeah, we're still at the tail end of that. And so he kind of- What is a gulag? Stalin put away his political prisoners into these places in like Siberia, which is not too far from this area. So that gives you an idea of how cold and how terrible this area is. But he would put prisoners that were, you know, anti-Stalin in these prisons. Not at all done by any other Eastern uh, or Western political country. You know, when someone says things, we don't want them to say, we lock them up. But they did wow. for him. So then there was Rustam Slobodin, also known as Rustik. And he was the son of a professor. And then Gregory Kuchinsko. He had also recently graduated. He was friends with Dyatlov. And he came along and he was an engineer at the Mayak nuclear complex. Oh, wow. But he was also a mandolin player and also liked writing poetry. And then there's the last guy. This okay. guy shows up at the last minute. And his name is Semen Zolyatrov. He was way older than the rest of them. He was 37. The rest of these are in their mid-20s. He was a veteran of World War II. And there are all these pictures of the group. And he stands out so much more than the others because he's got tattoos all over him. He's got this huge mustache. It's like a Ted Lasso mustache. It's awesome. But he kind of shows up at the last minute. But even the photographs show that he's just goofing around with everybody and all that. But he does um, not dictate decorum, my friend. Right, exactly. In one of the uh, journals, uh, Zena has a, you know, she's keeping a diary of all this. And or, so January 24th, a few days after they sat out, she wrote, with us is senior instructor of the Kurov Sports Base, Alexander which is one of uh, Simon's other's names, Zolotrov. He knows a lot of songs. It's just happy somehow that we are now learning new songs. So they're having a good time on this, right? Yeah. So they leave January 23rd, heading for this outdoor adventure. And they stop at a couple cities along the way, towards the river, towards their end goal of Mount Oriton. Right. During the trek, they documented their trip in a journal, photographs. They were basically just having a good time, singing, skiing, arguing, you know, making goofy faces for the cameras and stuff like that. And they make their way up the slope up to the mountain called Kolyat Sakol Mountain. And they decide to make camp at about a thousand feet elevation. And they dug a shelter to create a level foundation for their tent that would protect them from the very poor weather conditions. And okay. that's kind of where we go. They're due to return on February 12th. And they're going to send a notice to their sports club. There's no notice. Okay. Nothing happens. And the families say, please find our kids. They're grownups, but we need to find them. So search parties begin searching on February 20th. 
So now this has been two weeks, almost three with no contact. And then finally on February 26, they found the abandoned tent on the slope. The Dyatlov stove was disassembled, but there was food laid out. There was a cup of hot chocolate prepared, but not consumed and nobody around right no bodies okay you know the the team was there the upi team was there the soviet officials were there and then they had a group of the mansi people which is the local native tribes people who live the old ways in the urals they hunt they gather they they're part of soviet russia but they're not part of soviet russia very the indigenous peoples of the area basically okay and so, but they're expert guides, so they're helping them find this stuff. So as they search the area, they find Krushinko and Dorshinko under a cedar tree about a kilometer and a half from the tent. Okay. And they were dead of hypothermia, but there was a small campfire they had made. And then as they go back up the slope, they find Dyatlov, Komagrova, and Slobodin at various points up the slope, kind of like they were trying to go back up to the tent. Okay, so they're lower on the slope from the tent. And so yes. this looks like they were trying to get back, back to, the, to tent. the tent. Like they got it. Took off and are coming back. And then it's well, the not ones until... they found that died of hypothermia, were they dressed appropriately? No, they were not. And that's, we're going to get. Okay. To sorry. I'm jumping. Yeah. I'm jumping. Okay. You're jumping, but that's okay. It's okay. That's, this is, you know, this is 60 years of speculation here, right? We don't yeah. know exactly what happened. So the mountain, Koliat Skull, which is basically dead mountain in the language of the Mansi people yeah. and Oratotan, the, the big mountain, the name for that is don't go there in the Mansi people. <laughs> so oh, I, I don't like that. That's why they aren't really happy to be helping these people to try to find it, right? Now, the tent had been cut open that looked like it had been cut open from the inside, but most of their belongings, including several pairs of shoes, are just in the camp. They found about eight or nine sets of footprints from the team, many of them made with nothing like socks or even, or maybe one of them was made with one shoe on the set. Okay. And they go to that nearby edge of the woods. And that's where they found the, uh, the, the two bodies. The next three, like I said, on the way back to there and their photos, which are available in the public domain, are terrifying of the bodies. Oh, wow. The, all the hikers, they said, 100% hypothermia, no indication of severe external damage except from the cold. Now, okay. one of the things that isn't explained in that is Dershenko, he was, quote, brown-purple in complexion. And he had gray foam coming from his right cheek and gray liquid coming from his mouth. And the okay. two hands of the hikers under the cedar tree were scraped away and the branches above them were torn down as if they had tried to build a shelter or something in the tree. How far from camp were they? About a kilometer and a half, just about a mile. That's not far enough that you'd stop and try to, okay, this is weird. It's super this is, weird. Again, I'm weird yeah, out. right? I've got, 
You're not going camping ever. Go note that down. <laughs> so with all that, yeah, we're like I said, we're still just getting started here, right? Okay. So Slobodin, however, who was one of the guys coming back, had injuries consistent with someone falling and hitting their head over and over again. And Kolomagrova had a baton-shaped bruise on her side. And they were generally oh. underdressed. And some were even wearing other people's clothes. So basically, they fled without preparation into the night, despite being experienced hikers. Now, where are the other four? We don't find them for two more months. So it gets even grislier. No, it sounds like it's... So this is weird because they're all leaving in this massive panic. Yeah. May of 1959, in a ravine not too far from them, they find Dabina, Zeliatrov, and Thibodeau Bignol. And okay. they had fatal injuries, including broken ribs, a fractured skull. Dabina and Zolotrov's eyes were missing. Dabina's tongue was missing. Kalyatrov, they found him and died of hypothermia again. So this is where the theories start coming in. Why are they in so much worse shape than the bodies found in February? You know, maybe it was because they were exposed to some warmer weather now. It's May. The bodies are laying melting ravine water. Maybe that added to the decomposition process. But one of the comments from the report is the significant skull damage and the other two major chest fractures could only have been caused by an immense force comparable to that of a car crash. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then when they start looking at the lady who's missing her eyes and her tongue, uh, she's also missing part of her lips and a piece of skull bone is missing. Okay, so, they... so I, I gotta ask, what did they think so the first bodies they found, because the other ones they found, what, two months after the first ones? Yeah. Of, uh, yeah, May. Almost three months. Yeah. What did they think happened to the first two? Well, they think the first two died of hypothermia. And they were trying to build a fire and maybe even a shelter with those sticks. Now, the second group suggested they died much later because they were using the clothes from the two that died at the tree. So one of them's foot was wrapped in one of the other guy's pants. Another one was found in her fur coat and hat. So he'd pretty much taken it from her after she died, supposedly. You know, we think. Now, what's weird is their clothes showed evidence of being radioactive. Wait, what? What? Yes. <laughs> so they're on a mountain in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Russia. And yep. they look like they died of hypothermia. Yep. Yet they are radioactive. Yep. And so the Soviet leader, uh, Lev Ivanov, who is the prosecutor on the Dilatov tragedy, he closes the case. He says, an unknown compelling force, which the hikers were unable to overcome, made them cut the tent open and flee as fast as they could. They ran into the nearby forest and below freezing temperatures. And at a cedar tree, some of the hikers started a small fire, but it wasn't enough to keep the group alive for the night. They fled back to the tent too fast uh, to gab their winter gear. So on the way back, 
They froze to death on the slope, exposed to the elements, possibly unable to see in the dark. And then the other two died next to the fire. So the official story was it was their own incompetence. So these uber-experienced hikers that have done this a billion times as well, a group. 10 to 20 times each, yeah. Yeah, but that's a billion to me because I don't hike. So yeah. they're uber-experienced, though, super-certified to do this in a group. So this isn't like one or two of them, right? No, the whole thing. Yeah. Now, the only reason one of them survived was one of the guys who didn't make it that far. When one of the first parts of the trip up in one of the first towns he got sick with an unexplained illness and couldn't continue so he is the only survivor of this group okay and where, when did they find him or he was already back by the time everybody went missing. yeah he was back and he was one of the ones wondering where the hell are they okay so when did he get back in relation to when everybody was called missing he got back in early february so before the time they were to report he reported back said oh they're doing fine they, they left but then after they didn't make their report back, he was one of the first ones to go, what's going on? Where are they? Oh. This is my okay. friend. So. But they were fine when he left them. Yes. Okay. Now, one of the other things was, so the Soviets early on secretly, now this is only after years and years later, they secretly thought that the local Mansi tribe attacked them. But that's because... The way they fled their tents, the, the damage done to the second group of bodies, but that pretty much fizzled out, right? Because the Mansi were pretty much peaceful, and the evidence really didn't suggest human conflict. Uh, okay. And there were no other evidence of footprints on the mountains except for the hikers. So they cited maybe it was an avalanche, and the sound of snow collapsing frightened the hikers out of their tent and they fled. And then when they were going back to get their stuff, realizing, well, maybe it's not coming, that it did come and wiped them out. But the problem with this is there is no evidence of an avalanche. Yeah. Just, and even the investigators reports when they first got there, that was one of the first things they thought about is, is there an avalanche? But no, no avalanche recorded at the site. And to this day, no avalanches have ever been recorded there before or after. Well, but we're just going to call it that. We're going to say it was an avalanche and blah, blah, blah. And they were inexperienced. They and saw there it. was no evidence of damage to the tree line near there. So okay. that would have been, you know, an avalanche would have done that. And would experienced hikers made a camp in that spot that would have been vulnerable to an avalanche. If you're running from an avalanche, you don't just stop and build a camp and say, oh, you know, here's here we're safe. No, we need to be further in the woods. So basically it was just that was the theory and they closed the case. So this is it. We're done. Now we get into some of the theories about this, but you know, there was strange behavior, the lack of clothing. And even with in-depth research now on hypothermia, or we know irrational thinking, behavior is common early sign of, of hypothermia you know we sometimes think we're overheating when we're freezing when we get hypothermia but the trauma to the second group was you know they, they were saying maybe there was a ravine that they were walking over not realizing it because of the snow so they fell down into the ravine and that would explain 
the damage. But if that's the case, why didn't they, you know, were they not more prepared? Why didn't they have a little more stuff with them and stuff like that? So there's all these theories and stuff start building up. And there was even a possible that some argument got out of hand because there was a history of dating between several of the members that possibly some of the lack of clothes. Yeah, that was some of the other theories that were being thrown into it. So with humans ruled out, right? Wasn't other humans. Yeah. This is where we start getting into the theories, right? Okay. This is where things start taking the edge that our eerie travelers will appreciate. Well, um, just for the record, this is already taking quite a bit of an edge because... This is like a horror movie. If you were describing this to me without telling me it was a real life event, yep. I would have thought that this was a horror movie. That well, and that's exactly why there have been many horror movies inspired by this, including John Carpenter, who just had his birthday, 76, uh, The Thing, his remake of the original 50s, The Thing. He had a yeah, Love Pass kind of inspiration for it. And then there was also the new season of uh, True Detective. The you know the creator of it says he was inspired by this incident as a child, and he wanted to know more about it and all that. Wow! So we've got a lot to unpack here. It coming. sounds like it. It sounds like there's yeah. massive unpacking. So I think maybe we take a quick break, and then we come back to the theories, and then that Disney movie tease that I gave earlier. So okay, we'll be right back. The sweltering heat of the Florida sun breaks as a chill runs down your spine. A dark shadow looms from a nearby tourist trap. You didn't expect to find this kind of shade in Florida. If only there was some sort of travel guide to steer you through the spookier locales. Well, you're in luck, reader. Join author Mark Muncie and Carrie Schultz as they lead you through the darkest locations in the Sunshine State in creepy Florida, available from History Press and at fine bookstores everywhere. Prepare to be devoured. The Wolves of Wharton is a six-part complete book series by Erie Travels producer Bo Lake. It has been called dark and visceral, steamy, dramatic, and a fresh take on the werewolf mythos. If you like action, adventure, a large serving of body horror, and some steamy relations, the Wolves of Wharton series is for you. Pick it up wherever books are sold or at linktree.com slash bow underscore underscore lake. And we're back. We're back and Erica just went looked at the pictures. We're going to include a link to some stuff, but yeah, they're pretty interesting, right? Yeah. So, so let's start with the theories. This is where it gets a little wild. So our theory number one is avalanche, right? Case solved. Well, the, the area, as we said, has no evidence of avalanches. There has been no, you know, anything. So this could have been a freak occurrence. And just happened to hit on the night when they happened to be on that part of the mountain. But with no real evidence of that, 
even now some people still insist that this is what happened the you know because of this people start arguing it's a cover-up we're covering up something else that happened particularly remember this is russia 1950 late uh, late 1950s right at the start of the cold war and we just don't talk you know if somebody tells you to shut up you shut up in russia wow the next theory ufo because we've got cattle mutilations that are you know surgically removed body parts from cows and sheep and and things out in the american midwest and all over the world this has happened that nobody seems to know what happened to these things. They just happened. That was immediately because people were talking about her tongue being removed, the eyes being removed. So again, this is another one of those where it could have been something like that. So some people were saying, you know, that the, the damage to the tree was the result of a UFO hovering above the treetops, you know, with their skin, lips, and eyes surgically removed. Some people say it was just decomposition. And then some people said, no, intelligent action, right? And it doesn't yeah. help that the Monsi tribe that's on the other side of the mountain from them said that night that they had had an unprecedented display of stars in the sky. And when people asked them what that was, it was like, oh, they were dancing. The stars were dancing. So that meant like maybe a mil uh, you know, meteor sh shower or something like that. But the fact that there was notes of that is interesting. So now, the most interesting claim, in my opinion, is that it was the Yeti. Really? Our Bigfoot Sasquatch friend, who have, inhabits remote regions of the Ural Mountains. The Mansi tribe has legends of a Yeti-like creature called the Mink, M-E-N-K, and it's supposed to roam that area. That's one of the areas why they named it Death Mountain and, and don't go there. And now one of the pictures in their pictures of the group is most no is probably most famous is called Frame 17. Okay. And it shows a snow figure that kind of looks like a Bigfoot leaning out of a pass. Now we do pretty much figure out that this is one of the hikers in his gear. He's wearing a, you know, basically one of those thick jackets with his, you know, his, his mask pulled up and stuff like that. And because they actually wrote a satirical newspaper, the kids on this hike were having so much fun with their pictures and stuff. They wrote in their picture, science, in recent years, there's been a heated debate about the existence of the Yeti. The latest evidence indicates the Yeti lives in the Northern Urals near Mount Oriton. And they were written on this newspaper on their last day. So of oh. course, cryptozoologists are like, we gotta we gotta deal with this. And there was even a Discovery Channel episode in 2014 called Russian Yeti, the Killer Lives. And they point to that image from that frame 14. But there's a couple other images right before that one that shows a guy in a suit that looks an awful lot like that, but up close and less blurry. So what well, yeah, there's no real evidence for the Yeti that doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. There were no non-human footprints in the area of the tent and i think there would have been some stuff leaving evidence and that's why the aliens theory is also there because there's no other evidence describing them i think this was just them having fun and not realizing that they were about to become <laughs> a 
a a, a mystery that would lead to that. So I'm going to rule that one out for Erie Travelers. Okay, I think that one's that one's a no go. I do think the mink might be there. The people talk about it and all that. I don't think he'd attack a group of eight hikers, right? Yeah, no, that doesn't um, make sense. All right, so now the next theory. Remember okay. we mentioned the gulags from Stalin? Yeah. One not far from there that was closed down just before this, uh, but there was one that was still active near there as well. Okay. So some think it was escaped prisoners that had gone feral, had gone wild, and also would have you know been incarcerated probably since World War II. And they would stumble on this group of people and attack them. But I, again, that would explain some of the injuries, but not, and it would explain why they ran. And it would also explain why the Soviet authorities would kind of want to hush this up. But again, I'm not 100% buying that there was another theory that it might even just be the gulag authorities that were hunting for escaped prisoners but they're more shoot first ask questions later type so i think there would have been gun injuries or something if that was the case right well that and it seems to me like it would be a conversation in a way i get i get that they could think something but this is this isn't two people this isn't three people that are a part of this we're talking yeah. You know, way more people than, you know, is there. Yeah. What was it? One, two, three. Eight. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's yeah. a lot of people to go, but, oh, let's start, let's start physically attacking. Because that's the other thing to consider here, right? Yeah. Is this isn't like a band of Girl Scouts or something that is being attacked. This is, no, this is a group of grown adults, most of them male. Yeah. And one of them a veteran. And experience. Yeah. So to have something terrify them enough to put their survival at risk to run, right? This is something very, very different. The next theory is one of my favorites. KGB agents embedded in the troop. Yeah, so this is almost something out of um, a spy novel, right? At, at this time. Because they're saying Zolotrov, Kletrov, and Krushenko, they think they were KGB agents and the others didn't know that they were on a secret mission. <laughs> they were to root out an American CIA cell somewhere in these mountains. And they um, were going to be delivering radioactive materials to the CIA agents pretending to be in cooperation with the USA. But they were to photograph the agents so the KGB would be able to identify them and double-cross the CIA. The meeting went wrong. The CIA agents figured out their betrayal, killed the group in the melee. You know, this is something out of, you know, a Chuck Norris movie. And that's why the injuries are what they are. And that's why radiation is on the clothes. Okay. Um... Why did the Russians even come with a Geiger counter in the first place on a search and rescue mission? Okay. I would like to slightly unpack that theory. Right. I would like to begin with, um, yeah. explain to me the strategic advantage of having a base in yep. that particular ridiculously snowy, wintry mountain range in Russia. Absolutely fucking zero. So let's- well, Who's going to go there? Who's going to exactly. buy you? Exactly. 
Like, okay. I, I get it if we're in the middle of Moscow or even on an outskirts of Moscow, we could go, well, it's close, but okay, dumb as shit. Second all right. of all, why would they expose themselves by killing eight hikers? Like, this right. is not, or nine, ten, whatever. Like, they're so, why would you do that? That just doesn't even make sense. And this one is going back to the guy with the tattoos, right? He's got a word tattooed on his arm that no one's been able to translate in some of the pictures. People have researched the word, can't figure it out. It's one of those Voinovich manuscript type things that we're just never going to know. It could have just been a code thing he did while he's in World War II. It could be a you know some gang sign or something, but very weird. Now, the radiation is because the two guys we mentioned were radiation engineers that worked at a plant that exploded in the area. Now, not you know a core meltdown, but had some explosions, so there was radioactive uh, emissions. And Kurchinsko, he quit because he had a, quote, complete unwillingness to work in the system. So imagine quitting your government-appointed job in Soviet Russia in the 50s. That's, you know, not what you do. So his clothes did test for radiation and Xena. She also lived in that contaminated zone. So that's probably why they got it. They also worked cleanup and stuff like that. And these were things people just didn't think, right? Yeah. To, at that point to clean up, you know. So could have could have been the thing. Now, another theory was rocket testing, secret weapons testing from the Soviets. So on March 2nd, a radiogram was sent out to the search headquarters saying the main mystery of the tragedy remains the exit of the entire group out of the tent. The reason could be any extraordinary natural phenomenon, such as the flight of a meteor of meteorological rockets observed on the 1st of February in Ividel and by the group. The theory is that the Dyatlov group witnessed a top secret rocket experiment or weapons test and that the military then slayed them all to keep the program quiet and then staged it to look like a crime scene of a compelling natural disaster. And they even edited the hikers journals supposedly and that the rescue effort was just a show. So that's so the, the military they, possible involvement. So they're saying that there it is a, I just want to clarify this because it sounds dumb. Yeah. So they're saying it is a um, uh, missile weapon that caused them to scatter from their tent. Because they went, oh, look at that. And then that's when the military had to kill them because they took pictures of a thing that they couldn't let out. All right, so uh, now yeah. we're getting there to the last couple of theories. What well, the the next theory is the local tribes, you know, the Manti tribe. We discussed that earlier. They feel like they were, you know, maybe they, you know, mistakenly went to a holy place or some place. And again, I think that's just us, uh, you know, as colonizers trying to blame it on the indigenous, right? That's. We there is no evidence that the tribe did anything. And in fact, they tried to help them. And they call it the mountain of the dead for a reason, people. So they don't go there. So and then um now my favorite theory is gravity fluctuation. Theory argues that there is a sudden drop in gravity in the corridor where the hikers were camped. 
This is very little reported and still unproven phenomena, but it does kind of explain the location of the bodies. They basically rushed outside the camp and they were basically placed into a non-gravitational situation where they died instantly as if in a vacuum. And then the others were dragged from a tent that would explain the terrors from the inside as they were literally ripped from their tent because of that dramatic drop in gravitational pull. Now, it's, some people say that this happens a lot and people just don't realize it. And it rarely ends in you know drama like this. But, and some even say that if they'd kept their tent shut, they would have been fine. Oh, because so, they had their tent open yeah. to the snow. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. So, so the microgravity thing, I don't know, but I've had enough people tell me it that it's like that they've had experiences like this. And as you know, as travelers, we know not to let anything like that go completely unspoken because we, I, we've had a couple emails. I've had a couple emails over the years, not since we've started the show, but people who have experienced something similar to that, right. that they can't explain. So, and again, no reason to lie. These people, none of them have sought anything. And it was the first time I'd heard that with this. And I'm like, Ooh, that does fit a couple things I've heard from people in the past. So now all of that, right? We've got uh -huh. all these theories. So we've got Yeti, we've got UFOs, we've got military secrets. We've also got some people said it was infrasound that there was the, the, the mountains generate an infrasound naturally with the winds coming down off the mountain and stuff like that. And that could have driven them crazy. Now, infrasound is something we can't hear, but it does affect us. Okay. It's just one of those oddball things. So again, preternatural stuff we don't fully understand yet. The infrasound theory is, is interesting enough. And Noah suggests that infrasound could have driven them out of the tent. And once out of the tent, they couldn't find their way back in since the cold was already affecting them. And then they would have reached a frenzied point from the infrasound. And that would have caused them to do you know, the rushing and all that stuff. The, the other thing about, I, I want to go quick back to the Mansi theory is one of the Soviets were saying that the reason the Mansi were not a suspect was because nothing was stolen. The cameras were still there. The money was still there. Everything was still there. So that's why that. So now we go to 2019. Okay. That's how long this has still been going on and nobody knows what's happening, right? Nobody knows what happened. Okay. Now, Russian authorities reopened the case. And they've found a study, and what they say is that it was a snow slab avalanche, which is basically a surface layer of snow, which is compact and dense, and the snow beneath this crust is weaker. So when the crust breaks free from the weaker snow, it forms a slab that just moves down the slope, kind of like an iceberg go going on the ocean, right? And then this would have just dug out the top layer of snow where you know where they dug their tent in on the edge of the mountain it was enough to break that and as the winds blew down now we're talking like 65 mile an hour winds yeah down off that mountain that could have destabilized it and the snow pushed down and it would have caused this slab avalanche now the problem with this is it doesn't show that there's you know again there's no evidence 
of a slab avalanche at the tent site. The angle of the slope they dug in wasn't steep enough to trigger that. And they had done it nine hours before, at least, according to you know the studies they've done of the place. So if it was unstable, it should have collapsed like almost immediately. Right? Okay, Even with those winds. Doesn't explain how and where they found the bodies, though. Right, exactly. You know, so that's the theory is that that they fled and then they found out it wasn't a full avalanche. So that's when they decide to run back to get their equipment and get safe in the tent because it is cold enough to die and they can't get the safe, you know, the where they the two guys are trying to build the fire over by the trees. That's why the other guys come back and then they fall into the, the crevice and they die. You know, this is the theory. And this is what they say. This is what happened. I don't know. So, and then the thing is with this theory is it, it's still not making sense, right? Yeah. So they basically decide to run some computer simulations to see if they could figure it out, to figure out why there was no evidence for any of this stuff and why it was what it was. So let's bring in what happens in 2019. Okay, wow. Are you ready? Hey, let's all this time. Yep, I am. Uh, wrong one. I Anna know. And Anna and Elsa show up in Disney's Frozen. Do you want to build a snowman? Exactly, right? We don't need to be copyright stricken, so hold off okay. there. That's as far as we're going to go. say one thing, because we're right. talking about ice. We're building snow. Right, so the computer animation used in the movie Frozen gets over to Russia and they are so impressed with it, they contact Disney, their snow effects specialist, who shares with them the movie's code so that they can properly simulate the impacts of a small avalanche on the human body. Oh. And then Ooh. on top of that, they dig into an old General Motors seatbelt crash test from the 70s that they actually, instead of using crash test dummies, used cadavers. Oh. And these test results revealed different scenarios about snow impact on the hikers as if they were in the tent, right? Yeah. And basically, the cadaver test results resembled the tent setup. So the hikers are laying, you know, their skis are under the tent to create a rigid platform to sleep on. And so they would run scenarios about how the tent hikers would have held up under even like the smallest avalanche, but it would have hit them hard on the chest and head. So these severe injuries, you know, kind of like broken ribs, skull fracture and stuff, sometimes they don't kill immediately, right? As you aficionados know. And sometimes you might even not know how bad it is. And then if these things come falling on the tent and hit you, then suddenly you panic and Get the heck out of the tent. So they start cutting it open, and that's when they rush out because they're thinking a bigger avalanche is coming. And that's when they rush out. And some of those slabs in that frozen simulation would have been huge and dense and would have been very hard. It would have been hit by being hit by a cinder block. Yeah. So the others panic and they run, and the other guys run, and then they get out and they realize the big the big avalanche ain't coming. So let's get back to the tent again. So they rush back, but that's when they get lost in the ravine. It goes back to the main theory. 
So, but that testing basically gave them the explanation for the compelling natural force that the original report was looking for. That's how okay. far around this goes. Now, again, this only addresses the cause of the compelling force of nature behind the evacuation. So the other controversies, the traces of radioactivity, I think we kind of figured that out. The state of their bodies, the autopsy you know, findings, stuff like that. All this does, this snow slub theory, everybody's like, oh, it solved it. The case is over. No, this just solves maybe. It's not even 100%. This is a computer simulation of what could have happened to get them out. But, you know, it's so weird because some of the skis are still vertical. So that doesn't 100% say, oh, they were laying on the skis. That's why it hit them so hard. And the others weren't. They're, they're, they're still even having to use this as kind of a, well, this could be it. But I think it leaves even more questions. So what do you think happened, Mark? Honestly, I think that, you know, we're never going to know. This is one of those, unless we invent time travel and go back and see it happen, we're not going to know what happens. And if we did that, shouldn't we go back and save them? Yeah, you know, uh, this is one of those that's never going to be resolved. It's a science puzzle, right? And it's a mystery puzzle. I don't think it was Yeti. I don't think it was the natives. I don't think it was UFOs. That gravity fluctuation theory, as weird as it is, kind of gives me a little bit of a, okay, there might be something to this. And I hate to say that because I don't want to be the crackpot guy who says that, but I do want to say that there are forces of nature out there we don't understand. Well, that, and there's some what? things that we don't know because there's a couple things that I didn't hear mentioned as theories, and I'm not trying to add more theories to the pile, yeah. but food was very different back then, and spoilage was very different back then, and some molds and funguses and stuff can create, and, and we don't know if they were partaking in any, you know, things out there, but there are different things that could cause you know, hallucinations, panic, you know, that sort of thing. Because the thing that gets me is that even, you know, if they were preparing for an avalanche, it just strikes me. The thing that stands out for me is the closed situation. The right. running away without being properly covered. Because any survivor knows you have zero chance if you are in a situation like that, regardless of how panicked you are. And it wasn't like their clothes were taken away or any of this stuff. So that is weird to me and how far they ran. Because it's one thing if there's an avalanche, but a mile? Over a mile? Right. That is an epic fucking avalanche right. if it's over a mile. So right. to me, I just go, was there something else that scared them? But it would have to be a huge, huge scary thing. And I'm not saying Sasquatch, but something yeah. super terrifying to terrify a group of people because experienced if people, yeah, you know, hardworking people and stuff. And as you said, I agree 100%. This sounds like a horror movie, right? So there have been a couple horror movies. One's called Devil's Pass, which is all about this. Then there was another one called The Dyatlov Pass Incident. But the one I would like to direct everybody to is called An Unknown Compelling Force. And that one's from 2021. And that one is an amazing documentary. And he goes with some of the original troop of rescue people 
back out there and even talks to the Mansi tribe and, and other things. And he goes through all the possible scenarios and all that himself. And he actually goes through the past during the worst time of year and has similar incidents. So you really get a sense of what those people were in and what they were dealing with. That's the one I would highly recommend for everybody. Now, Diallo Pass Incident movie from 2013 is pretty good too. So uh, those would be the two I would uh, recommend. But that Unknown Compelling Force is top, and um, we'll put the link to it in the show notes. So yeah, absolutely. It's it's I have to say it's interesting. Yeah, just one yeah. of those. What the heck happened? What the heck is everything going on? And uh, we'll put some pictures. We'll put them in the Discord now on the uh, on the Patreon. So yes, and uh, Bo's gonna have fun trying to find a picture for the cover of this one. I'm sure. So. Actually, I already found one. Oh, oh. But we'll see what Bo thinks of it. She's the deciding factor. But deciding I have factor. to say this is weird. This is super weird. And I and I agree with you. It's one of those things. But I, I think it shouldn't be dismissed and just acknowledged that we don't know what it is. And honestly, it's, you know, nine people gone. Yeah. And and lost. So that's really. And it, the other problem is, is this is Russia that still tends to keep a lot of secrets you know, from the 40s, from the 50s. And that's why there's this cloud over it. You know, what could it be? Was it a cover-up? Was it this? Was it that? And I think that's always going to be there. I don't think we're ever going to, even when they do say, here's all the evidence, we're all going to be like, yeah, I bet you're hiding something. And that's just the nature of these things, especially where it is. So it's not one I can recommend to travel to. I would definitely not recommend you go to a place that says, don't go there. And don't recommend going to a place called Death Mountain. Uh, you know, there are other places you can go visit. If you like, you can drive along the Blue Ridge Parkway in the snow and just enjoy <laughs> some beautiful mountains and in, the, in the Smokies or go into the Rockies and, you know, go visit some of those places. And there are places you can go visit and climb some scary mountains. But, uh, you know, unless you're searching for your grade three badge, I, I wouldn't do that. And if I did, I would do it with with a lot of help. Wow. Well, this has been fun. I'm not going hiking anytime soon, as we all know, travelers. So definitely check out them. Now I'm going to check out this movie. This is so bizarre. And I feel like I was not buckled in properly for this way back. Machine yeah. High, so. Sorry. I told you this one was going to go all over the place, but I felt you we can... had to do it with the anniversary coming up. Just realize it's been 65 years. We still don't know. And I don't see us finding out anytime soon. Wow. With that, travelers, thank you so much for joining us. We've had a grand time as always. We will hope you continue to listen to us. And I think with that, Erica, I'm going to just say, make sure when you're in this dark and cold winter here that you light a big fire and get yourself some hot cocoa, but definitely make time to drink it. And if you are suddenly urged by some unknown compelling force to flee out into the cold, put your slippers on. And, you know, stop for a heating pad before you go. And we'll see you on the other side. 